Well, friends, it's a great privilege to be able to be a part of the National Reunion this year. And many of the names that I see on the screen are names I know have blessed me personally over the years at various weekends and beach mission reunions. And also there's many others who have been able to follow, but I have never got to meet you. So it's nice to see you. Thank you for joining with us. And I pray that the Lord will really bless us just as we look at his word together. I'm going to screen share here to get things up and running. Philippians chapter 1, and particularly focusing on verses 3 to 11, and we're going to just go through those verses just to see what the Lord has to say to us uh, through his word, and particularly through Paul as he finds himself in this prison cell, which we're thinking about last night, our theme is not bound by circumstances. And sometimes, even when we look back over the summer, uh, on a human level, we can regret what has happened and feel that it's been a missed opportunity. Uh, But the Lord knows exactly what he's doing. And when the Lord changes circumstances and he puts his people in different places, then he's still in control and he can still work his ways and do his work and save souls. And so here we are focusing on Paul in prison. And uh, we were reading those verses together that Hannah shared with us just a few moments ago. Steve reminded us last night, a Roman prison cell on Paul's day would have been a terrible place to be, totally incomparable with modern day prison. And yet, you and I could not imagine the hardships that there were. And yet, as he he finds himself in this particular place, and you would have thought on a human level, his thoughts would have been about how unfortunate he was, uh, maybe feeling totally unjust what has happened to him. After all, he's been doing the work of the Lord. He's been rowing around, building churches on his missionary journey. He's been preaching the gospel everywhere he went. And Some people may think, well, what's the Lord doing in this? Why do I have to find myself in such a place as this? Uh, But Paul was never too concerned about his own circumstances. In fact, uh, we read about him in another time when he said he had learned in wherever condition he was therewith to be content. And wherever the Lord wanted him, whether it was to be in a village or a town witnessing for him, whether it was to be in a church blessing the saints, whether it was to be in a prison cell, he was glad just to be where the Lord wanted him. And he decided that wherever he was, whatever his circumstances, he was going to be faithful to the Lord. The two greatest things in the Christian life is to know the Lord and then to make him known. And that was the passion of Paul's life. Steve shared with us last night how Paul in prison praised the Lord. And he was able to do that, as Steve reminded us, because he knew that God was in control. And knew that everything was going to work out just the way that God had intended that it should And therefore, he was able to trust in the Lord, even in those circumstances. It's a wonderful thing that you and I can praise the Lord in every circumstance of our life. And sometimes we're on a spiritual high when it just feels that the Lord is right at our side. And sometimes it's easy to praise the Lord in those times. But then there's other times in our lives, and we've shared even prayer points today, about those who find themselves in difficult places. Those when death comes, when illness comes. Maybe losing jobs, situations in the family, whatever it may be. And then it's a challenge. Are we still able to praise the Lord even in those circumstances? Well, Paul did. Regardless of his circumstances, he was one who was always praising the Lord. But not only that, as we think about these verses, verses 3 to 11 this morning, we see this, how that Paul in prison prayed for believers. Philippians is about Christian joy. 
And it's true in our Christian lives, sometimes we can, there's a risk that we can lose that joy, and maybe through sin, through taking your eyes off the Lord, through your circumstances. And we've often prayed that prayer that David prayed in Psalm 51 when he said, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And uh, there's Paul. He's filled with joy, and the reason is because he's thinking of these believers who he knows so well. There's a song that we sometimes sing, where we even sing it in the beach team. It goes to the tune of Jingle Bells. I'm not singing it for you. But it's J-O-I, J-O-I, surely that must mean Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. And Paul's first concern in his life was to serve the Lord and to glorify him in his life. But then secondly, his concern was not for himself, but for others. He had a proper view and balance of how things were supposed to be. The Lord first others second, and then himself last. It's a lovely thing, isn't it, in life when you meet a believer who's more concerned about others than they are of themselves. I know in my own experience, I've met people who had, well, had every opportunity and every reason to complain, to maybe list to you all of the things and problems that they had, but they just wanted to know how you were and how you were getting on. And Paul was one of those characters, one who was more interested in others. And so at the beginning of Philippians chapter 1, it begins with the salutation, then moves on to thanksgiving, and then on to prayer. And Paul thought on those believers in the prison. And as he thought about it, Warren Beersby provides a helpful little outline that you've never seen before. In verses 3 to 6, and Paul's basically saying to them, I have you on my mind. In other words, I'm thinking about you as I sit here in the darkness, in the cold, whatever it was, or even the heat at certain times on his own. He was thinking about those that he knew. Now, sometimes when we think of others, um, maybe our hearts sink when we think of some of the, the things of people. For others, our hearts warm. But here he was, he says to them, I have you in my mind. But then verses 7 and 8, he's on and says to them, but I have you in my heart. Now, to be in someone's heart, that's a special place to be. You can all think of some time of our life, maybe those of us who fell in love, got married, whatever else. Some people can be in our minds, but not everyone is in our heart. But Paul says to these believers, I have you in my heart. And then verses 9 to 11, he's able to tell them that he has them in his prayers. He's remembering them day by day. And so at the start of verse 3, he bursts into thanksgiving. And he's able to say to them all, that I thank God upon every remembrance of you. See, thankfulness and prayer are nothing new for Paul. The Philippian jail had echoed to the songs of Paul and Silas. You remember it was shared with us last night by Steve in Acts chapter 15 in Philippi. You've been legally arrested and beaten and placed in stocks and humiliated before the people. But through his suffering, the jailer had found Christ. And then Lydia and her household were saved. And then there was that poor demon-possessed slave girl whose life were changed. And other people's lives who were changed at Philippi. And as Paul speaks to these Philippians, he says, Every remembrance of them brought thankfulness. It would be a wonderful thing of all of us through our lives as we reflect back on those who we've met on our Christian journey, that there will be thankfulness in our hearts as we remember them, and what they said to us, how they encouraged us, the blessing they were to us. And as he reflected on the blessings, it increased his joy. So you see in verse 3 that thankfulness, and then it leads to joy. It's great to be able to look back over many years of our Christian lives and be filled with thankfulness to people who I know in your life have been a blessing to me, people in my church life, people in Boys Brigade, and people in beach missions, and whatever other sphere of Christian service we find, there have been those we can really thank the Lord for. 
Has it been a blessing to us? And prayer of thanksgiving is joyful prayer. And it's wonderful in those times when we can be on our knees or alone with the Lord and thank him for what he's done for us and thank him for others who he's brought into our lives and for the blessing that they have been to us. Verse 4, always in every prayer of mine, making request of you, for all of you, with all joy. Always, every time he prayed, these people were on his prayer list. He made requests for them, and it was with joy, and he never forgot them. And it wasn't just for some of them, or the ones that were easier to get on with, the ones that have blessed them more. He says it was for all of them. Someone who had a prayer list that was quite a length, but as he thought of people, he prayed for them, and he asked God's blessing upon them. We said that Paul's joy didn't depend upon his circumstances. He just depended on the Lord to bless him and to use him everywhere that he was. His desire wasn't for himself but his, and his circumstances, but it was for the spread of the gospel, and it was for his fellow believers. It was a delight to pray for them. It's very clear throughout all of the, the epistles that we read in the New Testament that Paul was a man of prayer. It's the obvious reason why he was used of God. And of course, there's a challenge there for all of us. If we want to be those and beat steams and Christian answer and our own churches and our Christian lives, we want to be used of the Lord. Then we need to be those who spend much time alone in prayer. He traveled far. He knew many Christians. He maintained a personal and an intimate interest in each one of them. And the fact he was a prison turned out to be a blessing to the Philippian church because possibly if Paul had been out, he'd been evangelizing, teaching, preaching. He maybe wouldn't have had the time to maybe think about them in the detail that he did. But here he is, set aside, locked in a prison cell, time in his hands, and he's praying for them and it's for their blessing. I think I'm right in saying it was Trevor Knight who shared with us a while ago that his two best prayer supporters have been two dear old sisters who lived in a nursing home and they met together to pray for him each day. It would be a lovely thing for all of us if people would take us upon our hearts and people would pray for us like that. People who don't just say, I'm going to pray for you, but you know that they are, that they have, and they continue to show an interest in the things we are living in their lives and they want to be a blessing to us. As you look in the first five, he talks about your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And you can see their perseverance as they joined alongside Paul. They continue with him. They were always there. They were faithful. And they carried on with him from that first day in the gospel right up until now. They're faithful and they kept going. And one of the things that impresses me most about beach missions is the longevity, if you like, of those who have been involved. I worked my first mission in 1985, but I know people and I've seen faces on the screen today. And those people were around in those days and were there before those days and they're still there. What a blessing it is for people who not only started, continued, but keep continuing as much as the Lord allows them to do so. And so can I encourage all of us this morning to be those who keep going, who don't give up, who keep our eyes on the Lord and keep persevering in everything that the Lord gives us to do. They provided financial help for him. They had prayed for him. They given wholehearted devotion to the spread of the gospel. And verse 6, again, as he thinks often, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And if he was thankful for their perseverance, he's now thankful for their preservation. Because he knows that the God that saves is the God that keeps, and God will continue to do a work 
age of their lives. But what does that good work? Well, again, commentators like to debate these things, and some would refer to their financial participation in the furtherance of the gospel, and it's true that they did that. But it's most likely that Paul here is speaking about their salvation. God was doing a work in the lives of these Philippians. In Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, you can also read, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence also, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's the work that God does in the life of every believer. It's the work that God does for us. That's in salvation. That's that time when the Lord shows us our need when he draws them to himself. And by faith we're able to put our trust in him. But then there's a work that God does in us, that's sanctification, that's that daily process. Day by day, the Lord molds us, shapes us, and makes us more like himself. And then there's a work that God does through us, and that's service. That's beach missions, that's evangelism, that's Christian answer, that's sharing our faith everywhere we go. It's putting together programs to be uploaded. It's looking after PowerPoints, it's playing instruments, it's doing whatever the Lord has gifted us to do so that we can serve him in whatever way we can. And this is to continue until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the coming of the Lord to take home his church. The grace in the Philippians was evident in their lives from the first day until now. You'll think of Lydia again, as we shared with us last night, how the Lord had opened her heart. And then as he opened her heart, she then opened her home for the gospel workers. And she kept it open and it became the church of that those early converts in Philippi. You think about the jailer who no sooner had he trusted the Lord that he takes these men, he washes their wounds, he brings them home and he feeds them. Right from the start, they were those whose lives were changed and those who the grace of God was beginning to be displayed in their lives. As we said, it's possible to have people in our minds without having in them in our hearts. And some people can say, I'll pray for you and we walk away. We've done that before. And maybe in truth, we've maybe never prayed for them. But Paul was one who kept these people close to his heart. In verse 7, we see how that he lovingly carries these names on his heart. He cared for them. In verse 8, we see how he longed for them with a deep love. And when you love someone, you want what's best for them. And when you want what's best for someone, you pray for them. Sometimes you've heard people say, all I can do is pray. And uh, we know, that, friends, that that's the best thing that any believer can do for another believer is to uphold them in prayer, to remember them at the throne of grace. And so Paul, verse 7, is able to say to them, I have you in my heart. And as he has them in his heart, he's thinking about himself in chains, and he gives two reasons and two things for the defense of the gospel. And then he goes on to say about the confirmation of the gospel. The defense of the gospel, that's the ministry of answering the critics. And there's plenty of them around these days. In the workplace, in the classroom, in the beaches and in the city centres. And very sadly, many of them even occupy church pulpits. There's arguments and questions which need to be addressed. And Paul was one who was going to defend the gospel. And that's a call that you and I have as well. Now, wherever we find ourselves, we need to be those who defend the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to define it and then to defend it. But he also confirms to them uh, the confirmation of the gospel, and that's establishing the message more firmly in the hearts of those who already are believers, building up the saints, establishing them their faith 
than the word. W.E. Vine once said, the gospel both overthrows its foes and strengthens its friends. And at the end of the verse, he says to him, you're all partakers this grace with me of grace. This is a grace which was going to sustain them and help them in opposition and persecution. It was going to be difficult. People weren't going to accept the message. But the grace of God would keep them going and be a blessing to them. And what the believers witnessed was not Paul's love channeled through Christ. It was Christ's love channeled through Paul. How do you know that you're abounding in love for other believers? Well, two things. One of them is that there's a concern that we have for them. Now, what are we those who are concerned for other believers? Do we really love them? Are we those who have a willingness to forgive one another, even at times when we let each other down or say things maybe that we shouldn't? Verse 8, the memory of their faithful cooperation makes the apostle long to be with them. He really longs to see them again. They mean so much to him. And so the passion of Philippians 1, verses 7 and 8 leads into the petitions of Philippians 1, 9 to 11. Paul, as he loves these Philippians, he prays for them. And thanksgiving gives way to prayer. And we see the substance of that prayer in verses 3 and 4. He talked about how that he prayed for them, how he always prayed for them, how he prayed for all of them. And now he's going to tell us what exactly it is that he's praying for them. There's other Roman prison prayers that Paul prayed. We haven't time to look at them this morning. But you can maybe look at those on another occasion. And as you put all of these together and you say, well, what did exactly Paul pray for these people? Well, when you combine the list, there you have it. There's wisdom for knowledge, for power, for endurance, for long-suffering, for joy, for gratitude, and for love. He's praying for the continual progress like newborn babies who are expected to grow to maturity, and his concern was for their, mat- their spiritual maturity. Many times throughout his letters, he tells the people that he's praying for them. And he said, it's a great blessing to know that people are praying for us. But there's five things as we finish this morning, just to outline briefly, that he prays for them in verses 9 through to verse 11. The first thing that you see is that he prays for love. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. He wants them to have a love in their heart. What sort of love does he want them to have? Well, it's God's love. It's that agape love, the highest form of love which they can have. He doesn't ask that they'll begin to exercise this love. It's apparent that this love already exists in them, but he wants it to abound and increase. The love is where it all begins. As we don't love God this morning in the way that we should, and we can't love others, we don't have a burden for the loss. There's really nothing we can achieve in our Christian lives. So his prayer for them is that their love may abound more and more. There's some who see this as a reference to the love that Philippians have for each other. And certainly there's verses and the Lord himself um, spoke again of how we ought to love one another. And Paul encouraged uh, the believers again to love each other. But this love was for their love for God. This was the love that had to increase their love for God himself. And if you love God as he should, then we're going to love his word. And then we'll be compelled to pray. And then we'll have a burden to reach out to others. And Christ will have the preeminence of our lives. And if you practice love, you'll experience joy. I wanted them to have a binding love, to have discerning love. That's when the heart and the mind both work together. The abounding 
the word abounding, the word used here means to overflow and cascade like a waterfall. They want your love to abound and abound and to abound. And he wants that to happen with judgment or discernment. And that's the ability to judge well. And that's a mark of maturity. William Hendrickson once wrote, a person who possesses love but lacks discernment may reveal a great deal of eagerness and enthusiasm. He may donate to all kinds of causes. His motives may be worthy and his intentions honourable, yet he may be doing more harm than good. Friends, we need to discern in what we do, how we give and what we support. But not only love, he goes on then to talk about excellence. And that's the purpose of this love. You'll notice that link. He says that you may, or even so that, that you may approve the things that are excellent. And when a person is dominated by love, there will be a desire to seek and approve what is excellent. Because we want to be those who are controlled by the deep knowledge of God's word, those who are completely discerning and discriminating, and those and who will be led into a path of seeking excellence in their lives. Love and light will enable them to discern the things that are more excellent. And that word approve, again, is used many ways in the New Testament. But it's always to do with evaluating something, to looking at something, to making a determination. And the Phillips translation puts, they want you to be always able to recognize the highest and the best. It's not the ability to distinguish between good and bad. Some, most people can do that. It's to distinguish between the good and the best, and only some seem to be able to do that. See, to get the best of our Christian service, we need to know what the best things are that the Lord has for us, the things that he wants us to do. And then following on from that, he goes on to speak about what we could call integrity, love and excellence, lead this integrity, says that you may be, and he prays that they might have mature Christian character, and he prays that they would be sincere. There's various forms in which this word is used, but one of them is the word sincere comes from Latin, two words, sine and carry, which literally means without wax. And basically what happened in those days was that the potter sat at the wheel and he began to make, and the particular creation he was making, he would fire it and he would bake it, and then frequently there would be an impurity which would cause it to crack. He would use wax to fill those cracks, and then we paint it over and sold it to something which was pure and right. So the discerning buyer would hold it up to the light, would turn it and twist it. And if it wasn't pure, if it wasn't right, if it was cracked, then the light would shine through. And the Lord wants all of us that when our lives are examined by those who look upon us and before the Lord, that we're authentic, that we're real, that we're genuine. There's no pretense and there's no hypocrisy. He also wants them to be blameless without offense so that our lives don't cause others to stumble. And we need to be careful in our lives and the things that we do, the places that we go, the things that we say, that we don't and cause a stumbling block to others. And these two words, sincere and blameless, Paul's referring to the inward and the outward parts of our character. As concerning ourselves, we're to be sincere and pure. As concerning others, we're to be blameless. And that's the kind of example that we ought to be. And then fourthly, he goes on to talk about fruits of righteousness. He prays that they might have mature Christian service, that they may be filled and fruitful, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. That refers to something that's happened in the past that has continuing results. He wants them to be those who be filled with the fruits of righteousness. What are the fruits of righteousness? Well, that's the fruit that righteousness produces in a life. It's good works. It's Christian character. These are fruits that are produced by a right relationship with God. 
And then he says, which are by Jesus Christ. We abide in Christ and he produces the fruit. You remember John 15 and verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. We abide in him and he produces that fruit in our lives, that fruit of righteousness, which is evident for others to see. But then as we come towards the end this morning, the final thing that's outlined fifthly is God's glory. William Hendrickson again says, fruits from heaven must waft their fragrance back to heaven again. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Again, the Lord said, herein is my father glorified, that you bear much fruit. The reason that you and I pray for each other, that we pray for each other's growth, that we pray for souls, is not for anything of ourselves, but it must all lead to the glory of God. The difference between spiritual fruit and human religious activity is that the fruit always brings glory to God. To the glory and praise of God. Love is the foundation of Christian living and ultimately leads to God's glory. True Christian fellowship is when I have other believers in my mind and my heart and my prayers and it produces joy. Finally, I just want to make one comparison here. If you see that verse 11, you compare it with another verse in Isaiah 61, verse 3. Just look at the bits in blue, particularly at the bottom. It says that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. If you look again, cross-reference that with verse 11 above it there, called trees of righteousness, that's being filled with the fruits of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that's which are by Jesus Christ that he might be glorified, that's to the glory and to the praise of God. And as believers, our aim and our joy is to live to the glory of God. What a challenge for us to remember other believers in prayer, regardless of our own circumstances, to be thankful and joyful as we think about them, to pray for growth, to spiritual maturity, for fruitfulness and for lives which bring glory to God and to him alone.